Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be here and just thankful as saints that we can actually have your word and to be able to understand it. We're thankful that um, you have uh, provided the, provide the Holy Spirit to illuminate us that we might be able to see things in the, in the right way. We're so thankful for that. Just ask that you would give us clarity of mind today. In your son's name we pray, amen. Uh, also want to remember uh, Cindy as she gets out of surgery. Um, and Dan won't be here for the next couple of weeks, so I will be doing the next four hours. You may get tired of hearing me. So there was a time. No, not four hours tonight. Two hours tonight. <laughs> okay, so that allows me to tell my story of Eutychus in Acts 20. <laughs> when Paul freaked so long that he fell out the window sleep. <laughs> so, yeah, they preached all night long and then I, my wife says I'm not Paul. There was a pastor who said that he told his congregation that and they, they told him if you could preach like Paul then we'd let you preach. <laughs> we'd let you preach that long. Uh, well, I can't preach like Paul, but we'll give it a go for the, uh, the two hours tonight then two hours next week. And so we stopped and we were on page 11 of our outline <clears throat> and for those who are online the uh, I did download the 11 to through 23 online so if you go to the church website it's online and so <clears throat> we were talking about grace and what the aim of grace is and uh, we probably will take the better part of uh, the next two hours maybe even uh, three hours uh, the next first hour of next week talking about this because it really gets down to the importance of why is grace important and I think that grace is wholly important and I think that as the believer is able to understand grace it really frees you to stop stop doing if we can just get believers to stop and you know it's just like you you get people who come in and you're doing a job and the people come in and they want to do the job and they just want to start doing something. They just want to start doing, 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 doing. Wait a minute. Slow down. Let's figure out what we're supposed to be doing. And we actually exalt people in the church when they come into the church. We want them to immediately start doing. That's the worst thing I think you could do. I think it's the worst thing you could do, particularly for a new believer. One of the, the best things that you could do for a believer is to teach them how to live the Christian life. That's the best thing that you can do. And how, in doing so, teaching them how to live by grace. See? And I think what happens is, is as, a, as a church, and, and many of your local churches are so consumed with ministry, that we've got to, got to get the work done, got to get the work done. And you, you don't realize it's better for there to be nothing happening and people growing spiritually than to do the other. I would rather see the church be insignificant from the world's point of view. And people are growing spiritually than to be doing a lot of busy work and no one's growing. And I, and I don't think that we always get that. But you see, grace is, remember, and let's go back before we get started in Hebrews 13, is where we're gonna start. In Romans chapter um, 11, 
this is a real rugged definition of grace, but I think it's, it's workable because it gives you the understanding of what grace is. And I want to continue to come back here because I hope that you don't lose sight of the fact of what grace is. And so notice in, great, uh, in Romans chapter 11, and notice in verse, we'll pick it up in verse 4. But what says the answer of God unto him? I have reserved uh, to myself seven men, seven, seven thousand men will not bow the knee unto the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time, also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. And so that word of, of in the English language is a very nebulous word. It translates so many different words. So here, I would say, it is no longer out from works. Works are not the source of grace. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. So you see what he's saying? If it's dependent upon works, if grace is dependent upon works, it cannot exist as grace. So grace, I mean, uh, there is nothing that you and I are dependent upon doing in order to get grace. Nothing. Nothing to be saved. Nothing to stay saved. Nothing to be saved in the future. Nothing. Zilch. Nada. And this is a simple thing. But people have a hard time grasping it. And so he says, but if it is out from works, it is no more grace, otherwise work is no more work. You have two opposing words that are used here, grace and works. They cannot coexist in the same space. One's going to have to go. You do not do any works. You and I, we don't perform any work in order to earn anything from God. Anything. Zilch, nada. I, I don't know how many times I can say it. And it probably would be worth it to continue to say it over and over and over again. Because people don't believe that. They think there's something I've got to do. I've got to do something. And not only to earn favor with God or to earn God's grace, let me say, but also to earn anything from anybody else. Much of what is going on in the world and in Christian Christendom today is a lot of people who are in the church and they're trying to show everyone else how righteous they are by what they do, by how much they give, um, by you know, what kind of ta so-called talent they have, be they singing in the choir or on the deacon board or whatever it is, you have a lot of people who are trying to show themselves righteous by these things. God doesn't want it. He doesn't want it. Now what we're going to see, and we're going to see it before we leave this section, is that there are works that we do, but those works are not to earn anything. They are a result of grace, not to get grace. They are what results from grace. 
And that's the thing that's really important to know. And so in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, another thing that you see that grace produces is it produces stability in the believer. Stability. Spiritual stability in the believer. And so notice in Hebrews chapter 13, and remember, remember Paul is talking to the uh, Jewish believers, and um, he's talking to them about not living under law and why it is important to live by grace and the fact that we have something better than they ever had under law. We have a better hope. We have a better, better promises. We have a better covenant. We have a better high priest. It goes on and on and on. And so he comes to the 13th chapter and he says this. Uh, go back a little bit just to get some context. We'll start with actually verse 1. Let brotherly love continue, our witnesses, fondness for the brethren. Be careful, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember them that are in bond, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable and all, and their bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such as you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. And just, I would be remiss not to say here that this is so emphatic, the way that he says this, I will never in no way, no wise ever leave you. I will never in no way, any wise ever leave you in a lurch. You ever had somebody leave you in a lurch when you needed them the most, they weren't there? He says, I will never do that to you. Verse 6, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can what shall man do unto me? Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation or their, really their manner of life. And here's a rebuke for pastor teachers or those who teach. You know, look, if I say it and I'm preaching it and it doesn't work for me, as someone once said, it's not going to work for you. Look and see if it's working for me. If it's not working for me, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Or certainly I'm not living it. And so he goes on to say, verse 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, here he's talking about not, and so a lot of people will use this to talk about um, that Christ never changes. So that whole thing of the fact that we're in a different dispensation is nonsense. We're still under law today. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the character of God never changes. His character doesn't change. His nature doesn't change. But his activities do change. The fact that the son was the uh, pre-incarnate son of God and then he came and took on a human body seems like change to me, right? I'm not very smart, but that seems like change to me. And the fact that he went back up into the third heaven seems like change to me, right? He can change his activities, but his nature doesn't change. And there's a big distinction between those. Notice in verse 9. Be not carried away with uh, very uh, which carried away with divers or uh, various 
and strange doctrines. For it is good is a good thing that the heart be established by grace. Not with meats which have profited them that have been occupied therein. And so the heart, and so we looked at today, I put up a, a, a chart here and hopefully just to give you an idea. The heart is a very important thing when you think and consider the Christian life. Uh, again, I am convinced, thoroughly convinced, most of the problems that believers are having are spiritual. They're spiritual at, at, at heart. And it comes down to this. And so what is the heart in scripture? The heart is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. The mind, the will, and the emotions. And this is important to understand. And so notice what happens here. When you look at the heart of the unbeliever, they have a mind, will, and emotions, but here in the realm of their human spirit, there's darkness. We, are, we say the light's on, nobody's home. Well, the light's not on. There might be somebody home, but the light's not on. And so they're, they're in a fallen state. So you have the mind, will, and emotions are all affected by the fallen nature. But the difference for the believer is this. We are saved in the realm of our human spirit. And we can actually see things the way that God sees it there. You see the difference? The unsaved man doesn't have this. And so when we are acting carnal, are we allowed us in nature to get the better of us? Uh, there is the potential that the believer can act up, out things in a similar way than the un, that the unsaved man acts. We could act just like unsaved people, and the result will actually be the same. The emotional instability that they experience will be the same thing that we experience. Now notice what he says here. So we look at the heart. Heart in the New Testament, and I told you it's mind, will, and emotion. I wanted to give you this definition from Abbott and Smith, and it's used as a and as in psychological sense, uh, in a psychological sense, to emphasize the seat of man's collective energies, the focus of personal life, the seat of the rationale, as well as the emotional, volitional elements of human life. Hence, where he, wherein lies the moral and re religious condition of man. And so, the heart of man is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. And so, how do you govern this heart? How do you govern, govern it? When you try to use legalistic principles, your heart is going to respond to that. And so, there's a lot of dispositions that we could talk about with regard uh, to the heart. And I give you a lot of background here that we're not going to go over. Uh, the, um, try to explain to you the immaterial heart of man and some of the things that can happen emotionally. Notice as you look at scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, if you look up the idea of soul, um, back in the Old Testament, hundreds of uses of the word for soul. And when you look at it, the Old Testament saints could not control their souls. Their emotions were all over the map. And so you see a lot of fear. You see a lot of uh, faintness or timidity of heart. You see a lot of being overwhelmed by in the heart because their souls are just totally uh, taking them over. Um, you see um, discouragement that affects the soul. 
and then you could see um, the idea that their soul was troubled um, on the continuum. And, um, you could see a lot of that in the book of Job, where Job talks about his feelings and what's happening. So a lot of the, a lot of um, believers don't really understand and fully appreciate how important this is. When you get to the New Testament, I think that the word for soul, which is suke, you go over to the Old Testament, it's nephesh. You get over to the New Testament, it's suke. It only occurs, I think it's less than 100 times that it occurs in the New Testament. How is it that you find over in the Old Testament, I, it's actually a word study, I think it's about three or 400 times in the word for nephesh, which is soul. You know why? We don't have time to walk you through it here. They were governed by their souls. Their souls caused them to be unstable. Do you know when you come to the New Testament, you and I can uniquely possess our souls? Our souls shouldn't control us. Not anything wrong with being emotional, but we're able to govern our emotions and being a part of the heart. What does he say here? It is good for the heart to be established. How? By grace. Grace is the key. And you can try anything else you want to try, but I'm going to tell you now. Those Old Testament saints tried a lot of things didn't work. Why is it that we come over here? You will not find this kind of scripture said in the Old Testament. Why is it that we come over here in the New Testament and we have great admonition that tells us about how to deal with the heart? Now notice what he says here, this word for established. It's the word for bravado. And it means to call someone to become stronger in the sense of more firm and unchanging in attitude or belief, to strengthen or to make firm, to make something firm, that your heart can be made firm. Now look, if we're not living by grace, there's several things that are going to happen. Uh, as you look at the enemies and you go through the Christian life, one of the, the, one of the real issues that causes, I believe, a lot of emotional instability is the, is the soul. Because the soul, um, being the seat of your emotions, what does the sin nature attack? It doesn't appeal to your reason. You know what it attacks? Your soul. And so here, grace, as the believer is able to live by grace, he's able to see what is true and able to overcome this in nature and able to be stabilized in that area. And so you see this word established, it's used in several places. Um, it's used to describe the believer who is walking, for example, in his position in Christ. And let's look at that one in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7. So we're jumping around because we're not going to be able to deal with a lot of it, but I gave you more information than what we're going to be able to um, handle. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7, And so here you have uh, Paul is writing to the church of Colossae 
um, and he uh, is talking to this church about some doctrines that he wanted them to know, though he hadn't met them. And notice he said in verse 1, For I would that you would know what great conflict I have for you and for them that are in Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, being uh, and unto, unto all the riches of the full, full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the spirit, joy and, be, and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, notice here what he says, so walk ye where? In him. And so this idea of walking, is this a physical walking? Do you go to a church and you walk around in the church and you say that, oh, I'm walking around in him? No, it's mental. It's how you see yourself according to who God says you are as a result of being in the new creation. And so as the believer sees himself that way, it is very crucial. It has a, an empowering effect, and we'll see it. So for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he has counted him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Where? In him. God counts you and I to be righteous, it's not because of what we've done. It's the righteousness that the Son imputes to us as a result of the work that he accomplished. You said it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. God counts you to be righteous. Now this is a very stabilizing thing. So if I know that the Father is seeing me as righteous as a result of what the Son has done, do I have to work like the Dickens to make myself righteous? Do I? I hope you wouldn't think that. Because at that point you're saying that what the son did was insufficient. That his righteousness is not good enough. And so, notice, and so he goes on in verse 7 and he said, Rooted and built up in him and established, there's that word there, established in the faith and this idea of uh, being made firm. Uh, here's a perfect uh, ideal in which there is a continuation. It starts at one point and there's a continuation of it all the way through of uh, this ideal of being made perfect in the faith. As you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And I think that this is a result of it because, look, if you, if you ever tried to be thankful and force yourself to be thankful, Okay, I know you guys haven't, but I've tried it. So let me tell you, learn from my experience. It doesn't work. I'm thankful. Thank you, God. I mean, and you just, it's forced, right? You even feel ashamed saying it. Because you know it's not something that the Holy Spirit's producing. You're just trying to make it happen. Well, I'm supposed to be thankful here. It's kind of like about a person reading a play saying, oh, I'm supposed to say this here at this point. <laughs> and that's kind of how it comes off. And I think that's the result of it. But notice a couple other places. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 13. 
Now, why does he continue to say this? Words matter. Words matter. And we don't, and I know today in America, we don't think words matter. People say things and we just think, ah, they're not really saying anything. Words matter, particularly as they relate to scripture. And so here he comes back again and he says it in First Thessalonians chapter 3. And notice he says, and uh, we'll pick it up, verse 11. Now God himself and our Father um, and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men. Oh, really, it's toward all in the context here. I believe he's talking about believers. Even as we do toward you. To the end that he may establish or establish your hearts. Unblameable. In holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. And so he's looking at the future time as to when that's going to occur. Notice in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. Notice the, the, the thing that the apostles had a focus on as they, 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 they founded churches and what they tried to do as they went back through these churches or went across these churches. Notice in verse 19, and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with uh, Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and, and to Iconium and Antioch. And notice what they did as they went back, confirming the souls of the disciples. And our word for confirming there is actually in the words to Rizzo, and it's in a participle form, a continual thing that they were involved in and confirming or establishing the souls of the disciples. Why did they focus on that? Oh, they were just sitting up talking about things that didn't really matter. I think they did. I think they were talking to them about things related to grace. I think they were talking to them about things that caused their hearts to be set at ease. Somebody asked me here recently, don't you get excited or anxious about what the, the stuff that you see going on in the world? And I said, no, I really don't. I honestly don't. You know why? Because first of all, we've been accorded things that give us the opportunity to have peace, to be able to have joy, and even more important, I've read the end of the book. <laughs> that, that makes a huge difference when you understand it. And so this establishing this or confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And so you'll see this word for, uh, it's a form of the word sterizo, this establishing. Sterizo is used in scripture uh, of this idea to call someone to be in a fixed 
place, to be unmovable, to cause someone to be fixed in such a way that they're not just bounced around all over the place. And I don't think this is physical. I believe this is dealing with a spiritual sense. And you find believers today in the church. And we find them all over the world. I have a friend that I've been talking to for quite a while. And what does he say to me? This is what he sees in the churches that he's in. And the believers that he's associated with. What causes that? There is a doctrine that causes the believer to be fixated. Where you're not bouncing to and fro all over the place. And where you're actually able to um, grow and really appreciate the things that are provided to the believer. And I believe that's the things that uh, we see that are, caught, that are taught by grace, as we saw back in Hebrews. And so grace uh, teaches it. Uh, Grace teaching establishes the material heart. Notice, and just we'll look at this and we'll move off of this in Ephesians 4 chapter, and this will be the last scripture we'll look at. And we could stay here for a long while, but um, I give you the, some of the scriptures so you can go look up on your own, but there's just so much here that we could stay on and we'd never get anything else accomplished. In Ephesians chapter 4, notice in verse. Um, 11 and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and I would say even teachers and, and the reason that we translate it that way is because of the, the language there is the way that it's uh, the language works and and you continue to see that if anyone who is a pastor should be a teacher so you don't want a pastor who doesn't know how to teach so if someone something happens to me here and you guys are looking for a new pastor Make sure you get someone that knows how to teach. Doesn't matter how articulate they are or how they look. If they don't know how to teach, they're not going to be of a benefit to the church. And so notice he says, verse 12, for the and why did he do this? For the perfecting of the saints into a work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, into a perfect man, into a measure of the stature of the fullness of, of Christ, or really I think that's uh, um, the Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, um, excuse me, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness where they by they lie in wait to deceive. And this word being tossed to and fro is actually has the idea to be blown around. It's it's uh, like a uh, uh, waves that are coming up on someone and just like coming up on a ship and just tossing it around and it just goes wherever. And look, you know, for believers who are not strengthened, who are not fixed in what they believe. And if they're not living by grace, you see this result. They're just all over the map. And you, and you see it. And so people come up with all kinds of other reasons as to what that is. But, you know, Scripture is pretty clear about it. Now notice, um, I will end it with this, that you have these several things that talks about it. Uh, the established believer would be able to be a stable believer. He will not be susceptible to any kind of doctrine that comes along. He will experience faith rest. You know, the, 
the Jews in the Old Testament could never just trust in what God had done. They always wanted to do. You come over and we'll see it again in Hebrews chapter 4. They didn't experience rest. God has provided a rest for the people of God today. That you can rest from your labors. And it's there for the taking. Notice uh, the established believer will live by faith and he will have the ability to run the course laid out for him. And so, you know, you have a lot of things going on in the church and so there's a lot of things people are doing and saying, but the believers who are living by grace will have a laser-like focus to focus on those that doctrine that is able to build him up and give him the insight and the strength to be able to do those things that God wants him to do. Notice the aim of grace was to be able to build up the believer. Notice in Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. Acts chapter 20 and verse 32. So Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus. And he meets him in Miletus. And as he gets ready to go, he says... Uh, he gives a dire warning for the church in Ephesus. And he says to them in verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He's talking to the elders of the church. To feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now, he made this prophecy, and in fact, it came true, remember? Look at uh, First and Second Timothy. Paul sent Timothy over into Ephesus. What were they doing when he sent them there? They were teaching, they were taking Old Testament doctrine and misusing it. You see Ephesus again over in the book of Revelation. What did it say about the Ephesians? They had left their first love. You know what this shows me? It's not just about knowing information. The Ephesians were probably the second most educated church in the Bible, in the New Testament. They understood a lot of things. That's no safeguard against going off course. That you, know, you have to be have some interaction with the Holy Spirit. And so this, this actually happened. And so notice, he says here in verse 30, Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things. And why are they doing it? To draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. And now brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, or really the word concerning his grace. And what does it have the ability to do? Which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all of them that are sanctified. And so you have people that say, no, 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 grace is not doing that. If you teach grace, all you're teaching is easy believism. There's a lot of people believe that. Grace is just easy believism. All you're teaching people to do is just, just easy believism. No, it's actually teaching people how they can actually grow. 
because you're not going to be able to grow by any other means. And this idea of able to build you up um, is the word to make you grow, make one grow in the Christian life. It's actually the word, um, it's used for uh, physical building, it's used for metaphorically, for uh, spiritually being built up. It's the word for orco domine, for form of that. And so it has the ability to build the believer up spiritually, grace does. There's nothing else that's going to do that. And what is happening in the church is the church is teaching all kinds of other things. They're teaching philosophy, they're teaching psychology, they're teaching all of this politics, all this other stuff, and it doesn't have the ability to be able to help the believer to get to where they need to be. Grace has the ability to provide authentic service to God. That through grace, the believer can actually serve God in an authentic way. Now, I think about this when I remember, as you turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, 28, where uh, Jill may remember this, as we got off in Corfu, Greece, me, Jill, and Scott, and Joyce, and we went into this church, and I, I think it was a um, Greek Orthodox church, as I recall. And so we go in there, and it's on a Sunday. You might remember this, Jill. We go in there, and it's on a Sunday. And we sat, and first of all, we were sitting on one side, all of us sat on one side, and everybody turned around and started looking at us, strangely. And we thought, well, we must be doing something wrong. And then we looked around, and we saw that all the men were sitting on one side, all the women were sitting on another side. So me and Scott got up and went on the side with the men. And everything restored to order. <laughs> and then we watched as they went around and they had all of these pictures of the saints up front. And they were going around kissing these pictures. And you were like, well, that's kind of unhealthy. <laughs> and then you see the priest come through with all of the incense and stuff. And you think, well, what is he doing with that? And I felt like standing up in the church saying, this is not how this works. <laughs> this is not grace. This is nothing. What are you doing here? And they probably would have thrown us all out and banished <laughs> us from ever coming back in there. But I think about that when I think about the scripture here. And so in uh, the 22nd chapter, and uh, the 12th chapter, I'm sorry, of uh, Hebrews, notice what, uh, let's go back and get some context here. And, uh, and he's talking about what happened under the law versus what is happening under grace. Notice in verse 18, he says, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burn with fire, and are unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, where the voice that they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched a mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And you see this in um, Exodus chapter 19. And so this is coming on the backdrop of what God had all, did all this stuff with Israel and had told them, all, look, up to this point you've had to do nothing. I've done it all. I have borne you with eagle's wings. You have done nothing. All you have to do is continue to believe that I will do it. And what was their response? Oh no, we can do it. Just tell us what to do, and we can do it. And before you 
land-based, these people, is that unlike what we're doing today? Tell us what to do, God. I can do it. I can do it. And this is what Moses was describing. So what God says, you can't do it. I'm going to show you that you can't do it. One of the reasons that he gave the, the law was to separate men from God, to show how fallen man is. We don't have the capability to do what he wants us to do. Even to this very day, he has to do the work. And so what, what did Moses, so you think that the law is just great? Look at what Moses thought about the law. Verse 21, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Oh, he just thought it was wonderful, didn't he? Verse 22, but you've come, so you've not come to that. Not somebody says in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and unto a city of the living God, a, a heavenly Jerusalem and an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn which are written in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that? And so he look at it. He's just saying, look at this. Look at the contrast. You don't have this frightful scene that Moses endured under law. They could never do it. Do you realize they could never do it? None of them. And this is why you know anybody that says that they live under the Mosaic law, pray for them. Because I can tell you what, they may not show it, but they're trouble. Pray for them. He says, you've come to a different place. You've come to the New Jerusalem. Totally different setup. And he explains that, and then he goes on and he says in verse 25, See that you refuse not him that speaks, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet more, uh, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, on the basis of what he just said, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. This is what is called a... Um, Oratory subjunctive, and you are imploring people, come and join with me and let us have grace. Grace. Which is the total opposite of what we saw uh, in the earlier verses. Whereby we may serve God, and that word serve, and we'll see it later on, this word is to do priestly service to God. It's Latreo. Every believer today is a believer priest. Israel had a kingdom of priests. I mean, had a priesthood. We are a kingdom of priests, and we'll see it. Now, as a result of living by grace, we'll see that we can offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. They offered up animal sacrifices 
we offer up today, as we live by grace, spiritual sacrifices to God. And we'll see it as we move forward. Um, that we might serve God, uh, that to do priestly service to God acceptably and, and reverent, reverent, reverently uh, for our God is a, um, is a consuming fire is the idea behind it. And so this idea of God is, uh, through grace, the believer is able to serve God in an authentic way that you never could do under law. You know, a lot of those people, they didn't want to bring the tithe. They didn't. Well, you can see it in Malachi. By the time they got down to the end of the law, they were bringing some of the worst of the worst animals for sacrifice. They'd look through the flock and see if they found a bull that had one eye, maybe one leg. You know, they said that there's a, somebody sent out a, in our neighborhood association, I think, sent out a letter the other day saying, we have a three-legged bobcat running around in our neighborhood. <laughs> a three-legged bo bobcat. Well, they would go and get something like that <laughs> and offer it up to God. And so they had just come to the end of offering up the best. They didn't want to do that. Uh, grace allows you to serve God in a way that is authentic. That the motivation can be great. You couldn't do that under law. You couldn't do that under law. Another thing before we take a break. Um, well, let's see, we have the idea of... Um, well, we won't deal with that. We're, we're, I'll show you the, the uh, spiritual sacrifices, which is the next point, actually. And so the aim of grace is for believers to offer up spiritual sacrifices unto God. And so when we talk about spiritual sacrifices, it's the idea of sacrifices that are pertaining to the spirit, or pertaining to your rationale. So I can make determinations to do and offer up things that God sees as a sacrifice. And as I'm spiritual, I can do that. And when I do it, and do it under the right motivation, you know what God says? Isn't that wonderful? Well, you know, if you've had kids, and you, or you've worked around someone and, and over someone, and you told them things to do, and when you see them get it right, isn't it wonderful? You say, and you didn't have to make them do it. And they come to you and they say, look at, look. And they did it out of the right motivation. And it was right. You say, ah, isn't that wonderful? Do you know that's what God does when the believer offers up spiritual sacrifices to him out of the right motivation? And so notice, you see this idea of spiritual, and I give you a couple of definitions. William Newell defines it as uh, consisting of communications adopted to and only understandable of beings of a spiritual, in a spiritual realm or sphere. Uh, Alexander Souter gives it this definition, with general reference to the higher nature of man as directed, directly in touch with uh, and the influence by divine and by sometimes, excuse me, but sometimes associated with the demonic world. And so it's actually the idea of pertaining to or emanating from the spirit. But notice, there are things that happen from a spiritual realm in which we are seen as a spiritual house 
And, and it's on the basis of that, we are uh, able to offer up sacrifices that are of a spiritual nature. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 2. Now you have some people who believe that Paul was the only apostle to the church, uh, or the main apostle to the church, and that uh, his writings are the only ones that have merit. And I say to people who believe that, then Paul did not understand something that Peter understood. Did you know Paul didn't talk about some of the things that Peter writes about? And Paul did not understand some of the things that John wrote. John wrote that there's going to be two guys involved at the end in the tribulation period that's going to have equal authority. Paul only thought that there were going to be one. And so, I mean, a lot of that can be easily disputed, but people still believe that. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says some amazing things that you're not going to find in other places. Notice here in 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about uh, verse 6. You also, as lively stones, are built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. And so notice he's talking about all believers. Every single believer is considered by God to be a priest. You would have to be a priest in order to offer up sacrifices. So he's talking to every believer. Any woman who wants to be involved in being a pastor, here, you can be a priest right here. And you can offer up spiritual sacrifice because he's talking about men and women. And notice he says here, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, um, and I would say through the intermediate agency of Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, who believe, he is precious, but unto them which is, be disobedient, the stone which the builders disavowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient unto where they were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is something that is an oxymoron to the Jews. Holy nation, or someone could translate it, a holy Gentile. If you'd have told the Jews that there was a, such a thing as a holy Gentile, they would have thought, they would have choked. There was no such thing. But this is what God is saying. A holy Gentile, a they were peculiar people, a, a people for his unique possession, is how you could translate that. And why does he choose you out and me out? That you should show forth the praises of him who called you out of the darkness, or out of darkness, and into his marvelous light. And what are those sacrifices? Well, we see them in scripture. Let's take a few seconds to go through them. We have the first sacrifice. There's several. You have the um, six of them. You have the, the first. The first thing that I believe that the believer offers to God that He wants is you. So He bought you. The Son bought you. You and I are not our own. When you and I believe the facts of the gospel, we became servants of the true and living God. We don't belong to ourselves. So that means that we can't make decisions only for ourselves. 
And so Paul says in Romans 12, as he talks to the Romans in verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. See that? He doesn't want a dead sacrifice. And so you got people who say, I'm willing to die for the Lord. Well, that could be great in the right <laughs> situation. But do you know it's easier to die once than to live over the course of years for him? Dying is easy. It's the living part that's the problem. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Notice, see that word reasonable? There's really a bad definition here. And I don't know what you might be able to, it's pointed out in some of your translations, but here it's the word logicon. And again, I would translate it this way. See, reasonable service? I would translate it this way. It is your logical priestly service that this is what you offer up as a priest. Now we just saw back in 1 Peter that every believer is a priest. Well, here's one of the sacrifices you offer up to God. Me. This is what God wants. Now I'll give you an example of this. Before I uh, went to seminary, I was a sports writer. And I wasn't offering my body a living sacrifice. I wanted to do sports writing. I always dreamed of being a sports writer. I wanted to work for Sports Illustrated. I knew my gift was pastor teacher. I said, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do this. Right? Well, I was using my life for the purposes that God did not want them used for. And then God was very persuasive to me and showed me how it was in my best interest to do what he wanted me to do. And it worked. And I can see on this side of it, do you know God knows better than we do about what's good for us? He really does. And notice in verse 2, and be not, really, it's stop being conformed to this age, but be transformed, how? By the renewedness, not the renewing of your mind. You have people who think, I got to go around and get my mind renewed, because as I read scripture, that's renewing my mind. Your mind is already renewed. How was your mind renewed when it was regenerated? You see? Your mind's already renewed. The problem is living there and operating from there. And it's not automatic. See, I can operate out of my sin nature and not from here. And so scripture tells how that can happen. And notice the result of this. That you might prove or put to the test what is good and acceptable uh, excuse me, and be transformed by the renewedness of your mind that you might be able to prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And the reason that a lot of believers don't know what God's will is is because of this. Here it is right here. That's one of the main reasons. Not the only reason, but it's one of the main reasons. Because they're living their life in a totally different way over here and not here. And they, in living here, they want to do what they want to do and not what God wants them to do. And it becomes pretty simple. Notice faith, Philippians 2.17 is another sacrifice that the believer offers up to God. So when you are able to direct faith as you're filled by the Spirit and He gives you this faith to be able to use 
as you operate and use it, you are offering up a sacrifice to God. Do you realize how much it takes for you to do that? That you actually have to be spiritual to do it. And when God sees you execute faith in that way, isn't that wonderful? You know how you see a parent that says, that's my boy. I don't know that God says that, but we do know that he's well pleased with it. Notice in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. Yea, and if I be offered up of the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. And so you can see the Philippians um, who are exercising this uh, as a result of the ministry of the Apostle Paul among them. Sacrifice of faith, a sacrifice of doing good. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16. We see several of them in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. Now he's going to tell you what praise is uh, to God continually. And what is praise? So, is praise this? Is that praise? You know in Christendom, that's what they say praise is? That's not praise. Here we have a biblical definition of what praise is. That is, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his, what, name. So do, do we say, thank you Jesus, thank you Jesus? No. When you offer praise to God, you are praising him. You're giving thanks for a benefit that he provided. God, thank you for this food. And now you're not just giving thanks for that thing. You're attaching the, th the, the provision of that thing to something about God's character. Thank you, God, for this food because you are a good God. That's praise. That's praise. Now, did I make it up? I think there's a definition right here. And it's not giving thanks to just saying his name. It's giving thanks to his character. And that's what that's involved in. And notice he says in verse 16, But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, notice plural, God is well pleased. So what is doing good? And so the believer is able to do that which is inherently good. And as the believer performs those things, uh, as he does good, um, and those good works that God has provided for him to do, that, the, that that is offering up a sacrifice. And also, as the believer is able to fellowship with one another and with the Father, that, that, that word communicate is actually the word to do good and to fellowship. It's actually the word koinonia. To fellowship, forget not. And so as you are engaging and sharing in common with other believers, do you know that that's a sacrifice? That the believer is offering up to God? Well, a lot of believers don't think it's that big of a deal. I mean, I talk to a lot of believers. They don't think that fellowshipping with believers is that big of a deal. They don't think it's that big of a deal at all. But as the believer is spiritual, and he's able to fellowship and share in common with other believers, with that, God is well pleased. 
And then the last thing we see is giving. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 18. Now notice what Paul writes here. And so we've talked about this on Sundays all the time, right? What true giving is. And, uh, and I believe Second Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 9 is, a, is the best way to see that. But notice in verse 17, Paul adds another caveat. He, he connects that Second Corinthians 9 of how you give with being a sacrifice. Excuse me, notice in verse 17, he said, but because... He says, uh, verse 16, For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, and notice, and well-pleasing to God. And so this idea of uh, that, that God is well pleased with it. Not so here's they were offering up a sacrifice of giving. So as the believer is able to give, do you know there's nothing in the New Testament that talks about the believer tithing? There's no such thing. Uh, when I first got here, Jeanette's husband, Marshall, was showed me a book by Hoff, what was his name? Mm -hmm. uh, and he was actually pointing that out. And some people think that that's crazy. I mean, you go into some churches and tell them that tithing is not for the day. They'll say, shut your mouth, boy. <laughs> Did you ever say that? You don't want to say that. That's the third rail in a lot of places. You don't want to mess with the money. <laughs> but you know what giving is? Second Corinthians 9. As a man purpose in his heart, so let him give. Not out of constraint, not out of grief. And as the believer gives in the right motivation that way, God is well pleased. It's a sacrifice to him. And so you see those, and these are all a result of a, a believer that is living by grace. You cannot make people do this. These are a result of the Holy Spirit's involvement with, people, with the lives of believers. You cannot come up with a system whereby you can tell people to do this because the real thing is it's even if they did it, the real problem will be is their motivation, you see. You can get believers that will do things. One will do one thing and another will do another thing, but one is doing it out of a totally different motivation. And God knows the difference. And he's the one that's going to be the judge. 